Hey, it says it's live. It does. Right, here we go. Wow. Hentag. Add. Secure. Book. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in the law. I will always obey your law forever and ever. And will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your speak statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because of them. I lift my hand to your commands, which I love, and meditate on your decree. Okay. Yeah. That is that. And then we have, uh, let's see here, we got that, and we got... Um... I only wrote down one prayer request. Actually, I didn't write it down. I was just giving it. As we had uh, Pam in church today, she got rear-ended and see, in her car, and she's in a little bit of pain, so we want to have a prayer for her and for the person who was completely on another planet that hit her. Maybe she'll. Uh, we can pray that she'll grow up rain or something. I don't know what was going on, but kind of. at least you're okay, which is the main thing. But, uh, yeah. No damage to the car? Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Wow. Um, let's see here. Uh, okay. This day in Christian history. This day in Christian history today is 22 July. Let's see if we have anything fun there today. 21, 22. Okay. What is worth dying for? In the late 1640s, Alan Cameron, a Scottish merchant, had three sons. The oldest was Richard, follow it, followed by Michael and Alexander. Richard attended St. Andrews University, receiving a Master of Arts degree in 1665. He became a schoolteacher, indifferent to matters of faith. Then he began going to listen to the field preachers, men who went from town to town preaching the gospel outdoors. One day, the message of mercy and grace suddenly became real to Richard Cameron, and he gave his life to Christ, soon becoming a preacher himself. By the end of 1678, Richard Cameron had joined the Covenanters, Presbyterians who challenged the government's authority not only in spiritual matters, but also in the realm of civil government. In 1679, he went to Holland, where he was ordained. There, an exiled pastor laid his hands on Cameron's head and said, Here is the head of a faithful minister and servant of Jesus Christ, who shall lose the same for his master's interest. And it shall be set up before sun and moon in the public view of the world. Returning to Scotland, Cameron could find no one willing to join him in preaching in the fields because the laws had become so restrictive. Eventually, Don Cargill, joined him in holding field meetings in the inaccessible parts of the country. By 1680, thousands were attending. <clears throat> Cameron and the other Covenanters felt that the character of a ruler determines the extent of the subject's obedience. Therefore, they believed that King Charles II must be rejected because he was a tyrant who rejected both covenants he had earlier signed. The 1638 National Covenant, which preserved the Reformed faith in Scotland and guaranteed the Church's freedom from civil control, and the 1643 Solemn League and Covenant, which again preserved the Reformed faith and Presbyterian government in the Church of Scotland. In fact, Charles II had sworn to establish Presbyterianism throughout his realm. 
Instead, he reestablished the Anglican Church in Scotland and outlawed the covenants. In response, Richard Cameron rode into the city of Sancor with 20 horsemen on the first anniversary of the Battle of Bothwell Bridge and delivered what became known as the Sancor Declaration. The declaration rejected Charles II as king and declared war on him as a tyrant. It also rejected his brother, the Duke of York, as heir apparent because he was a Roman Catholic. Although regarded at the time as a futile protest by a small minority, it became the position of Britain as a whole within nine years. As a result of the Sanquar Declaration, Richard Cameron was declared a traitor and reward was placed on his head. A month later, he preached what was to be his last sermon. Cameron spent that night at, home of, at the home of William Mitchell, a covenanter. The next morning, July 22, 1680, as he washed his hands, he placed them on his face and said, This is their last washing. Mrs. Mitchell wept. About four that afternoon, Cameron and about 60 Covenanters were at Ars Moss Amour in Ayrshire. Suddenly, they were surrounded by government troops. Richard Cameron led the Covenanters in prayer. Then to his brother, he said, Come, Michael, let us fight it out to the last, for this is the day that I have longed for to die fighting against our Lord's avowed enemies. And this is the day that we shall get the crown. To the rest, he said, be encouraged, all of you, to fight it out valiantly. For all of you who fall this day, I see heaven's gates cast wide open to receive them. In the ensuing battle, 28 government troops and nine covenanters fell. One of the nine was Richard Cameron. His head and hands were taken to Edinburgh, where they were displayed on the North Brow, North Netherbow Port. The next Sunday, Don Cargill preached on the passage, Know ye not that there is a great and uh, there is a prince and great man fallen this day in Israel, 2 Samuel 3.38. If you have been living in Scotland in 1680, would you have been a covenanter? Is it ever right to rebel against one's government? If so, under what circumstances? Well, I could go all over that one today, but I'll keep it quiet. Give to Caesar what belongs to him, but everything that belongs to God must be given to God. Can't say what you want to think anymore in this in this day and age. Let's see here. All right, we are in the book of Ephesians. Yeah, we're in chapter four of Ephesians, and we're in verse eight of chapter four of Ephesians. Oh, we didn't. We got to do that first. Here we go. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to praise you first before we do anything else. You are great and you are glorious. And so we lift up your wonderful, beautiful name. We exalt you for who you are. And we thank you for how you have uh, brought us to yourself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful for that, that uh, we've been given the opportunity to hear it and to respond to it. And we would pray that this gospel would go out just as it did by those faithful people in Scotland so long ago. It would continue to go out by faithful preachers on streets and uh, through missions and through uh, the internet, however possible, so that uh, the word will get out until the day you call your church home. And Lord, we certainly lift up Pam and her back, and uh, we pray that nothing serious will be uh, developing from that. And uh, we just pray that uh, uh, anybody else that's listening that has a trial or a trouble or something wrong in their body or in their soul, that you would look into it and uh, search them out and just help them to uh, to uh, know that you are with them, even in their trials and afflictions. It's something we all face and something we all 
Uh, don't always like, but we know that uh, they may be a part of your plan if they will bring you glory. And if not, we need to get our, our situation right with you so that it will do that. We pray these things that you will be glorified. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so back up to seven. Okay. But to each one of us, the grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Eight. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Isn't that funny? We're doing that, and that's part of the sermon on Sunday. Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 17, the rights of wives in Israel. And I bring up that exact passage, and I didn't even realize it until today that here we're in that, uh, that particular, uh, he quotes that from the Psalms, but uh, it finds its origin in this Sunday sermon passage. Um, uh, we have also one thing I didn't announce, but we have Larry, who came all the way from up north, and he's visiting a friend down in Bonita Springs and bailing him out of an emergency. And while he's here, he drove all the way up from Bonita Springs this afternoon just to to uh, attend the Bible class. So welcome to you as well. He was here back in May, and here he is again for more punishment. Let's see here. We're in verse 4, 8, and I did not read this version, so I don't know if uh, uh, it matched what you said or not because I was so surprised at the uh, content. So this says, Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. All right. I know that I plagiarized some of my commentary from this verse to put into the sermon 10 weeks ago because I've been practicing it all this week. So uh, you'll probably hear a little bit, not too much, of, but a little bit of the same information for Sunday. Uh, the verse begins with, therefore, this is stated to explain the previous words, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, in order to show this, Paul cites the substance of Psalm 68, verse 18. He changes several words, and he goes from the second person to the third person. Thus, it is not a direct quote, but rather it conveys the substance of what was said, and then he equates it to the triumph of the work of Christ. So I'm going to take you back there to Psalm 68, and we'll read that really quickly. Psalm 68 and verse 18. Whoops. Verse 18 says, I'll start at 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. And as I said, it went from the second person to the third. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Okay, so there you go with that. And then uh, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God met with man. Its placement in Zion was the sign of victory of God over his enemies. They were defeated, the land had been subdued, and God rested in his place. The thought of ascending on high is that of being exalted above all the others who have been placed in subjection to him. Though Zion was not the highest peak in elevation, it was considered the highest place of honor. Thus, at any time someone traveled to Jerusalem, regardless of direction or elevation, from which they came, they were said to go up to Jerusalem. It's not the elevation that matters, it's the importance of the one dwelling in the particular location that matters. And so, uh, well, I was going to say something about the White House, but I can't say it about this current president. So, as the Lord who dwelt between the cherubim of the ark had been brought to this place of exaltation, 
And it, as it was a sign that his enemies had been vanquished, it says, you have led captivity captive. The significance that those who once were the captives, called here the ab abstract captivity, had themselves been made captive. They were now the subdued prisoners who were conducted in bonds during the triumphal procession to that of the sp spot of exaltation. Excuse me, I can't breathe right now. Uh, anyway, the, um, the idea here is that the captivity has been taken captive. And if you go back, I wonder if I'm going to repeat myself here. I don't think so. If you go back to uh, the Romans, what they used to do is when they would capture their enemies, they would take them in a procession behind the victors. And they would have these people that uh, uh, the captivity would be taken captive, and they would be a part of the procession being brought into there. And that's kind of the idea that we're getting here: is that these people have been taken in procession as captives. And then in Rome, they had a tradition, which you know it could be just tradition; it might just be a story. But there uh, is said that the victor would come riding in on his white horse to present himself to the emperor or whoever was the big honcho at the time, but in his ear, one of the slaves would whisper, glory is fleeting, glory is fleeting, reminding him that just because he had a victory this time, he might not have it next time. I may have gotten the wrong quote, but it was something very similar to that, all glory is fleeting or something like that. Anyway, quite often this verse is cited as a display of the prisoners being released from captivity by the work of Christ. Though this is something Christ did, it is not what is being referred to here. You'll hear that exact same sentence repeated on Sunday. Rather, it is the foes of God being brought into captivity after this defeating of his enemies. It then says, you have received gifts among men. Ascribing this thought to the work of Christ, Paul modifies it and says, and gave gifts to men. This is the specific explanation of the previous verse, which said, but to each one of us was grace. I'm sorry, I have two was's in here, so I've obviously typed. Oh, I'll get it. Hang on. Let me pick that up because I need that when I'm, I wrote was twice in a uh, row. When I get myself uh, doing that, I get, uh, you know, whatever. We'll do that. Okay, but to each one of us was grace given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The spoils of war were handed out to the subjects of the kingdom according to the pleasure of the vanquishing ruler. Likewise, God passes out his gifts of victory according to his choosing as well. Paul's words, though modifying the psalm, do not change the intent. The two thoughts side by side say, and gave gifts to men, that's Paul's words, and then it says in the psalm, you have received gifts among men. The same idea is expressed. Christ received gifts, which he then immediately turned around and handed out to his subjects. This follows from other times in Scripture where the same thought is denoted by a sudden and succinct expression. Scripture may say something like, bring me a heifer, which is simply a shortened form of bring me a heifer here for sacrifice. Okay, so it's just being succinct and it's getting a thought across in as few words as possible. The Hebrew is famous for that. The analogy of Paul is making that is making is that Christ was victorious in his work. He was exalted to the highest position there at the right hand of God, and from that position he gives the Holy Spirit to his subjects in the measure he so chooses. Life application, if you've called on Christ, you have been sealed with the Spirit. Now it's your responsibility to take the gift you possess and use it for God's glory. Each thing that you do should be geared towards returning 
glory to God for the grace which he has bestowed upon you. Burke, have something. I have a question. Oh, okay. I've heard for many sources that this is what happened Christ three days. Yes, when he went in, that's not at all what it's speaking that's of. Not what it no, is. that's not at all. Now, it's true, and I said that at the beginning of it. It is true that he did that, but that is not the context of what he's saying here. And you'll learn that Sunday because the original basis for this is from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses will say something. Let me read you the verses, and you can think about them now, and then we'll be there in uh, three and a half days. Um, let's see here. Is it? Let's see. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah, two and a half days. Whatever. Something. Uh, three days. Whatever. We'll be there soon enough. Okay. We're in Deuteronomy 20. He makes the point, and then it is cited by David. And I, you know, we can't say that definitely David used those words of Moses, but he did. There's just no doubt when you see the uh, terminology. But in Deuteronomy 20, and then we're starting in verse uh, 10 this week. It says, um, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open wide to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. That's where it's speaking of right there. And you'll hear that when you hear it in the Hebrew. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against it, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all of its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities, all the cities which are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations. Okay, so um, let's see here. Deuteronomy 20. Yeah, that's what I'm reading 21. I'm sorry, I knew that wasn't right, and I was... I was, uh, I, I could tell that wasn't right. This Bible goes from one page to another, and I'm always reading the wrong hand. Okay. Yeah, but that was I, chapter 20. No, right? that, it's not. It was 21. We're reading 20. Okay. We're yeah. Reading. yeah. We're, we're reading 21. You, um, you want us to read 20. No, I want you to read 20. I wrote 21 up there, but we're in chapter 20. But 20 okay. is it. Yeah, 20 is it. When you go near a city, so I wrote it wrong, so I'm reading the wrong one. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. No, 21, I see, I see exactly. 21 is what we want. Charlie is now waking up. Okay. Yes, I'm reading 21 with it right in front of me. But re Okay, thank you. That is what we want, 21. Okay. Uh, when you go, and this is a problem. When you do five different sermons right. at one time yeah. during a week, you get very confused. And then somebody, the funniest thing happened this morning. I have uh, some people that check the uh, the spelling on the uh, things I type up. And one of them is in Baltimore. And I sent him the thing this morning to look at. Another guy in New Jersey looks at it. And uh, anyway, I send it out to some people and they look it over. But the guy in Baltimore, he got on the phone and he called me and he said, I need to talk to you about this. And he was talking about Revelation 20, verse 4, I think is what comes out tomorrow. And I had just typed Revelation 20, 14, which was, there's a judgment here and there's one here. And I'm thinking he's talking about this one. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> just, that's what happens when you do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to read this now to you, the correct, the correct passage. When you go out to war, and I knew that wasn't right because I, it's dealing with women here. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her to your 
home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no, no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. Okay, so that's speaking about the captives is almost a direct quote that David makes in the psalm. So that's just so you know, when he talks about that, David will then refer to it using the same terminology, and then Paul use it in the New Testament. It's not speaking about Christ going in and releasing the captives. That's not it at all. It is using captivity in the abstract. They were the captors, and now they are the captive, and so they are being led in procession. That's what that's dealing with, and yes, I know people say that it was dealing with Christ. It's not. I assure you of this. Anyway, I apologize for reading the wrong passage and then completely brain dead on why it wasn't coming out the way that I had thought, but um, now that I've read you that passage, and then the next verses after that, there's one more set of verses after that um, that'll take you up to verse 17. Think, what is that telling you? As far as a woman being taken, taken captive, and you marry her, you have her trim her nails and cut her hair, and then after that, you go into her, she's your wife, and then you find out, oh, I don't like her after all, and you say, you're out of here. What is that? How does that picture Christ? Think about it, and on Sunday, don't send me an email because I, I just think about it and then see if you were right on Sunday, okay? And we'll just go with that. Okay, so that is the answer. I hope that satisfies you. It is not speaking of Christ bringing people out of the captivity, which is what he did. He did do that. Now, that takes you to another verse, which is um, Peter somewhere. And I don't know the verse. Um, uh, maybe you can find it. Well, I'll just really quickly see if my eyes alight upon it. And if not, then. Uh, uh, we'll go on, but he goes and it says he preaches to the uh, spirits that are in prison. You know the one I'm talking about? Um, uh, that is not at all what people think it is, at all. It is completely different than what you think it is, um, where they will give an account to him, uh, dominion forever, exceeding joy. I'll just see if I can find that, and uh, uh, I'm not seeing it. It might be in 2 Peter 2. which First Peter 3.19, he says. Let's see here, 18. Yeah. Uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Christ did not go back and speak to spirits in prison. Okay, that is not what that's saying. It's saying that the spirits that are now in prison were preached to by Noah. Under the influence of the Spirit, Noah preached to those people. They are now spirits in prison, waiting their judgment, but they were given the gospel at the time. Okay, Noah was a what? He was a preacher of righteousness. He was standing out there under the influence of the Spirit. He was telling people that you need to repent, you need to change your ways, the world is going to come under judgment. Obviously, they didn't because only eight people were saved through the water. It is not speaking of Christ going back, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. It's not speaking of Christ. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit through Noah preaching to these people, and now they are in prison because they didn't respond to the gospel. Okay, uh, those, These are important doctrinal issues that, you know, when you read a translation and you come to a presupposition for the rest of your life, you're going to believe that that is what it's saying when it's not. The wording is very hard to, uh, to get 
even in the Greek, and there is debate, but that is certainly, I am 100% certain that that is what that is picturing. It is the people that were given the gospel, were preached to, and they no longer are available because they were swept up in the flood. They are in prison waiting their final judgment. Okay, so there you go with that. Kind of the same idea here is that this is not speaking of Christ going and speaking to people, uh, you know, during the three days. This is speaking of something entirely different, which I talked about already. And so, Jim, 4-9. Okay. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly region? Okay, this one, the only thing that's really of any substantial difference is he also first descended. Okay, so uh, that adds in on this particular uh, uh, source text. Paul now introduces a parenthetical thought concerning what he just said in verse 8. There he cited the psalm, which said, when he ascended on high. He demonstrates that the psalm was intended to be a messianic psalm, and which pointed to Christ's descent from heaven to earth. It is thus also, excuse me, a presentation of the divine human nature of Christ. Christ descended, but in order to ascend, it meant that something else had to occur first. In order for us to think that, the, in order for us to think this through, he places it in the form of a question: What does this mean? but that he also first descended. It is his human nature which is being referred to here. The reason for this is to show that what was asked of us in verses 1 through 3 was already imposed on Christ the Lord. We'll go back and read that, 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right, that was already imposed on Christ the Lord. We are not being asked to do anything that he did not take upon himself. These words, the words read, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what Christ did, as is noted in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Does anybody know what that is called before I read it? 2, 5 through 8. It's, it, it's dealing with the kenosis, so it's called the kenotic hymn. It's Christ's, uh, what Christ. he did for us. Yes, let this mind in you be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This is what he's talking about. Christ first descended and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Okay, so Christ already did this, and that's what Paul is referring to. Understanding this, we are shown that God, God stepped out of the eternal, infinite realm and united with humanity. He descended. This is something that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 3. Take you there. He says this, John 14, 13, 12. Oh boy, went too far. And when you get down to just one or two pages with this really thin paper, it's hard to turn the page. Okay, so here we go. Uh, let's see here. John, uh, we'll start in verse 10, but it's 13 I want. John, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen. 
and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here it is. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Okay, so there you go with that. However, Paul's words go further. He says that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Questions often arise as to what this means. Sensationalists will generally say that this means that he went down into Hades itself. They even tie this into the words of the psalm concerning his leading captivity captive, is what we were just talking about a minute ago, indicating the releasing of souls from a type of prison. But as we saw in that analysis, it is not speaking of that at all. This is not speaking of his descent into hell. It is speaking of his incarnation. Let's see here, where was I? Yes, incarnation. A contrast is being made between his ascension to far above all the heavens of the next verse and the lowly state of being confined to the lower parts of the earth of this verse. Again, the reason for Paul's words of verses 1 through 3 explain what he is talking about. We, right now, we are in the lower parts of the earth and we are being asked to conduct ourselves in a particular way. In order to be compliant and grateful for our current station, we are being told that Christ himself, very God of very God, came and did the same. Because he was willing to do so, we should likewise be willing to emulate him. The coming verses after the parenthetical thought will continue to show us this. We are to live in this world and to pursue life in this world. But we are to do it with the heavenly attitude which Christ retained while he walked among us. This is what we're being asked to do. Unfortunately, and I know that uh, it's commonly taught, Burke says, a lot of people say this, and it's true, it's very common teaching. Same thing with Peter, same thing with certain passages from Jude, certain passages from 1 Corinthians 15. People love to sensationalize the Bible. I got to tell you what, the Bible is sensational enough just if you do it, if you deal solely with the redemption of man and forget all of the extra stuff that people try to put into the Bible, it is sensational enough. And when we do that, we take our eyes off of the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is not about the redemption of angels. The Bible is not about the redemption of dogs and cats. The Bible is about the redemption of man. And the Bible is about how Jesus is the one to do that. I mean, when I say the Bible is about, the Bible is about a lot of things, okay? The uh, preface to the Gideon's Bible that you read once in a while, that tells you what the Bible is about. It tells you about 15 or 20 different things that it's about. But when we talk about man, it's talking about the redemption of man. When we're talking about God, we're talking about God in Christ, okay? There are all kinds of religious writings in the world that talk about God, okay? And those religious writings do not get it right because they deal on something that is not what God is doing. God is doing one thing in this world. He's not doing a lot of things. He's doing one thing in this world. He's not saying, I'm going to save people from, from their sin in Buddhism. And I'm going to save people from their sin in Islam. And I'm going to save people from their sin in Ikankar and in the Jehovah's Witnesses and in all of these other, you know, Scientology. God is not doing that, okay? We need to make sure that we understand that when we talk to somebody about our relationship with God, it is through Jesus Christ, because that is what God is doing in this world. There's nothing else that God is doing in this world except that. And that's the importance of telling people about Jesus. Okay, I was so happy. I went to uh, breakfast. Finally, Mr. Lester, I haven't seen him in over a year. My old boss from the wastewater plant, we used to go once a month to have 
IHOP breakfast, okay? And I finally got together with him this past Wednesday. After all that time, he was able to go and meet me with meet with me there, and I got there 30 minutes early because I finished my job at 7-Eleven early, and the girl that always waits on us, Vicky, she was training a new girl, and she was also, um, you know, with Vicky doing her training, and I said, sit down here for a minute, because there's nobody else in there. I didn't feel like I was interfering with their work in any way, shape, or form. I was their work. Okay, so I said, sit here for a minute, and I said, who is Jesus to you? Her answer was wonderful. She said, everything. And this is just a little high school girl. She said, everything. I said, I don't need to go any further with this one. I was so thankful. And I said, well, I brought this for you. I had a track. And, uh, and uh, I said, you make sure you give that. Her cousin is working at the same place. And I said, you make sure you give this to your cousin and talk to her about Jesus because she may need her too. But that is what God is doing in the world right now. God is doing Jesus. He's not doing anything else except Jesus. And there is no other way to be reconciled to God except for Jesus. And so we need to make sure that when we talk to people about God, we insert the name Jesus as often as we can. You know, because a lot of people say, oh, you have a good relationship with God. Well, guess what? So do Buddhists. So do Hindus. So do Muslims. They all have a good relationship with God, and it's not the God with a capital G. And so they're thinking God, maybe in the same sense you are, some big ethereal thing out there that, I, yeah, I'm good with them. That's not it at all. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. When you say your prayers, make sure to include the name of Jesus while you're praying so that they know that you are praying to the one true God and his mediator that he has sent into the world. The more we get the name Jesus into it, the less people will misunderstand what we are conveying to them. Okay, that's so important. But when I, I just was floored. I didn't even know how to respond to it. I said, what is Jesus to you? you? Yeah. She said, everything. Good job. Like just, uh, just wonderful that there are people like that left in this world, especially when they're, you know, she couldn't have been 17 years old or 16 or something. And yeah, high school and all of the things that are attacking you in high school and all of the nonsense they're teaching people. And the first thing she says is everything. Unbelievable. Albert Barnes rightly states this concerning Paul's words. Into the lower parts of the earth, to the lowest state of humiliation. This seems to be the fair meaning of the words. Heaven stands opposed to earth. One is above, the other is beneath. From the one, Christ descended to the other. So when it's speaking of the lowest parts of the earth, it's not speaking of the subterranean areas. It's speaking of the condition in which we live. And Albert Barnes was correct in this. From the one Christ descended to the other, and he came not only to the earth, but he stooped to the most humble condition of humanity here. That is what's going on in this verse. It's not about sensationalism. It's not about anything other than Christ doing what he did, demonstrating to us the love of God that fills the pages of Scripture with humility, with gentleness, with tenderness, and yet at the same time with sternness to those that come against him, to those who mock him. You know, it's the same God. It's not a wrathful God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New Testament. It is the same God. And he's displayed in exactly the same way in both Testaments. Life application. Beware of those commentaries which tend to over-sensationalize Scripture. There is enough sensation in the work of Christ to fill our hearts and minds with an eternity of wonder. 
When people speak of dreams and visions of angels and demons and of heaven and hell, they often get into unnecessary explanations of these things. The sensationalism sells well. I can tell you that if you go on YouTube and type in certain things, you're going to see people with millions and millions and millions of views. And you click on it and you'll get no substance at all. Zero. You'll get no biblical value out of what you're watching. But because it talks about things that sound sensational, it's not worth it. I'm going to tell you that right now. It is not worth it. What we are doing in this world is honoring a Lord that has done the things that he has done as outlined in Scripture. And as I said earlier, there's nothing more sensational than that. Nothing. The sensationalism sells well, but it is often more than not an inappropriate analysis of what is being relayed. Not only inappropriate, it's just made up. It's just wrong. Yes? This takes me right back to Luke 2. Today, when you think of a baby being born... Oh, I was thinking that. They're down here in this... Nice. Isolated place, all clean. Everybody's wearing, you know, the mask yep. and everything. Yeah. But he was born in a stable with all the cows and the whatever. All the animals there. around him. I was thinking that while I was talking. I'm and glad you brought that up. Laid in a major, uh, probably uh, a rock chewed out. Yeah. The the lowest of low, he was out there in the barn. Absolutely. Absolutely. He just had an immune system of steel. Oh yeah, that's right. You know what? Back then people people either made it or they didn't. You're right. A, immune system of steel because you're you're born into those conditions. And like you said, nowadays we're and I was born right down the road where you're pointing at. I mean I was in that too and and uh you know, you go in there and everything is clean and sanitary and that's not the way Christ came into the world. Yeah. The king of the universe came in, in a very lowly way. A very little, and his whole life was just, you know, I love the verse when I get to it. I always have to stop and think when it's talking about uh, Susanna, the uh, the wife of uh, Chusa and all these people. And it says, and they supported his ministry. Yeah. The women supported his ministry. And anybody else would have said, I'm not doing this because that is way below me, right? I, I, you know, they'd rather fall on their sword than have a woman support their ministry. And yet it's it's highlighted right there. And these women supported his ministry. Yeah. And you have to stop and you have to say, what a great God that he would allow even words like that to be expressed in the word telling what happened. That's wonderful. The other aspect of it, we're talking about, you know, life in Israel without medicine and doctors and all that stuff like that. But here, the creator, the power that was able to create everything, everything. everything fits into a little baby yeah. that's like, okay, how did that, Yeah, the vessel is You know, the funny thing is when you say that, that is people say, oh, I just can't accept that. I can't accept that God could do that. And, you know, it's just a little baby. And listen, we have people that can accept that yeah. the Ark of the Covenant sat in a tent and the Lord God dwelt between the cherubim. They can accept that, but they can't accept that that picture is being fulfilled in the baby, which is actually smaller than the Ark itself. Is, we just don't think logically. No, we don't, but, we but, don't think clearly. But it's just like the, the if you started off to say it's sensational in and of itself. Yeah. Like that's it's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, oh it's it, beyond it, comprehension, and that's why so few people actually accept it. I mean, I'm talking about in the scope of the world. There are lots of Christians in the world, but in the, the scope of the world, it's not that many people that have said, yeah, I really believe that. It's just not. 410. Okay, he who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. 
Okay, different. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So a little different there. Same, same idea, a little different terminology. Here Paul is still referring to the psalm he quoted concerning the ascension of Christ. He just noted that his ascension implies that he had to first descend. Christ did not originate on earth, and therefore he had to have come from elsewhere. He descended to our lowly station. Now Paul speaks of he who descended. It is he and not another, the same one who came from heaven, descending to dwell, with among, to dwell among us is also the one who ascended. The descent was the incarnation, God uniting with human flesh. After that, he ascended, fully God and fully man. He did not put off his humanity, but retains it forever. And yet, in this marvelous state, it is he who ascended far above all the heavens. The ascension of Christ was a demonstration that he is fully God. In Matthew 28, 18, we see what it means to be in this state. I'll take you there really quickly. It says, Matthew 20, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And he says, all authority. Let me get there. Here we go. Um, Matthew 28. Yes, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so all authority. And when it says that Christ sat down at the right hand of the power in heaven or the right hand of God, or, you know, different uh, authors will say it differently, but it means that he is sitting in that position of authority. It's not God sitting there with Jesus at his right hand. It is him in God's position of full authority, full power, everything at his disposal, everything. With this power, he ascended and this was not just above the heavens, but through the heavens. This is noted in Hebrews 4, verse 14, where it says in Hebrews 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. There we are. Okay, 4 and 4. I'll take you to, we'll just start at uh, 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Here it is, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So he went ascended to the heavens and through the heavens. The expression gives us the sense of Christ's movement from sphere to sphere, claiming authority over each as he went. Eventually, he came to his final and most exalted spot, there to rule from the throne of God with his Father. From this highest position, far above the heavens, he rules completely and fully. This position is in order that, as Paul says, in order that he might fill all things. If we think of being in a room where it is completely dark and then the light is turned on, we can partially understand Christ's position. The light shines and it dispels all darkness. 
everything becomes clear and the entire room is filled with what was once lacking. We receive the light, the heat of the light, the knowledge of what the light shows us, and so on. This is what God has done in Christ. The universe itself was frustrated by sin. There was a darkness and chaotic occurrence because the devil had stepped in and fouled things up. I'll say this right now. So I was watching last night, I think it was, had to have been last night, um, uh, Answers in Genesis. Not is Genesis history, which I like, but I was also watching Answers in Genesis. And uh, I, the guy sounds young who does it. He might be 50 or 100 years old, but he sounds young. And he's got this great voice, and he's excited about his subject. And, uh, you know, some of their videos get really good views. They get really good views, and I'm happy about that. But they were talking about the um, dinosaurs that they found in Madagascar that, you know, the bones were just white. They weren't even ossified. They were just, they're white and, you know, they look new. And then the lady started testing them and they found blood cells still in them. Supposedly 65 million years old yeah. and nobody believed them. They said, it's impossible. This didn't happen. And the lady's wrong. Her analysis is wrong. She said, I ran these 14 times. And they're right. And then the world finally had to admit, well, this is true. And then they have to think up an excuse. But the point is, the point is that they were showing Brontosaurus. Okay, that was just a little background on the, the video in case you want to watch it. But they were showing the Brontosaurus and they were speaking about um, this. This is certainly what God was referring to in the book of Job with the behemoth. And they said, this is the first of God's ways. And they described the brontosaurus so that you can understand how big this thing is. It's it, it's massive. It's absolutely. It's like 140 feet long. It goes up 40 feet in the air, which means it's higher than anything around here. It it could see enemies coming from far away. They say some of them had tails that could whip at supersonic speeds, so they could defend themselves in 360 degrees, 120 feet out. I mean, they they could amazing things. Their bones are so massive that if you stand next to them, you're like a little peanut next to them, okay? And that goes up to another set of bones. And then how could they get all of that oxygen up through that neck? The neck is so long that they, they couldn't understand how they could do it. And all it has is these two little things up here to get the oxygen. So they know that there was a different atmosphere. The oxygen was more pure back then. This thing could breathe it in. But the bones actually become lighter because they are filled with like 90, I may be wrong on the percent, okay, so don't send me an email saying it was 91.3%, but it was like 90% uh, air or 60% air or something. It's just, it's almost like hollow tubes. And so they are like a honeycomb structure, the way we make our F-16s, you know, with the uh, aluminum, so that they're very strong, but they're very light. And this had to be designed. This wasn't something that you could have just said, I'm going to evolve into this over, you know, two billion years. It, no way. Okay. This took design. And further, guess what they don't have? They don't have any intermediary bones for these things. None. Zero. These things just suddenly were there. Okay. And this was on the world. And the world was in chaos after the fall. And these things were no longer, you know, whatever they were designed for at the beginning they were able to destroy, they were able to crush, they were able to do all these things. That's the point I'm making here, is if you think about what's going on in the world, especially the bone record in the old world, how everything was frustrated, but it was so glorious. It was so glorious, but there's wickedness everywhere, 
And God said, I'm going to destroy the world. And all of those creatures, these magnificent creatures were destroyed. But they know, they know that they took some of those onto the ark. Do you know how they know? I'll tell you a couple ways. One, they're described in the Bible. They're described in the Bible as living creatures after the flood. flood. And secondly, they have, and it's on the video, um, Answers in Genesis, okay, they have uh, depictions. I think they were in South America. I could be wrong. You know, I was kind of doing two things at once uh, through part of this, but they had depictions of actual, uh, what did I call it? Brontosaurus, thank you. They have depictions of them with people surrounding them with swords and one of them actually has got it up in active motion it's not like oh we found this dead thing and we're we got people around it the guy is actually in active motion they would not have drawn that unless they had a reference to draw it okay and then there's another one that they have another depiction and they said that the guy that does the tours there will not speak about what it is unless you turn off the camera and then he'll say that is actually a depiction of it. We know it, and there's no doubt about it, okay? So the world knows these things. The world knows what God has done, and the world was in a state of chaos because of the devil. So that's where we were at when we left off. The universe itself was frustrated by sin. There was darkness. There was chaotic occurrences because the devil had stepped in and fouled things up. Think of that time before the flood. The light of Christ, however, shone through the darkness, and the darkness could no longer overcome the light. And this remains true. Christ's light is being radiated out, filling all things according to a set plan. Who is Jesus to you? Everything. Everything. Thus he fills all things. As Ellicott says, Christ, as God, is present everywhere. As glorified man, he can be present anywhere absolutely life application we may think there's darkness in the world which is gaining traction and somehow frustrating god's plans but this is not the case okay there is darkness in the world i'm not going to deny that there's half of it sitting in the white house of the united states right now the other half is in the congress okay i'm talking about for this nation not the whole world okay these are wicked people these are bad people but they are not the end of this situation. They think that they are on a high roll and they're going to uh, have their little communist heaven. It doesn't make any difference. It's not frustrating God's plans at all. God has a plan and it will be effected. They are being worked out despite the darkness. He has simply allowed it to continue until the time of his choosing. And then they'll get their wake up unless they call on Christ first. We'll hope that that happens. Christ's victory assures us that this is so. Christ rose from the dead. He went to the grave. He died and he rose from the dead. We have all the assurance that we need on this planet that what's going on in the world right now. Who was I talking to? I think I was talking to you earlier. Maybe it was before you came. I can't remember. Anyway, um, uh, my friend Lisa over in Australia sent me a video from, it was, Sky News. And one of the people up there, like our administration here, she was up there telling the people what to do. And she says, when you go to the store, we do not want you. If you see your neighbor, don't greet your neighbor. They're wearing masks in there. They got masks on in Australia right now, but don't greet your neighbor. That could be dangerous. Okay. They're telling people not to even associate with people that they know. Don't, don't say hi because you might cause this virus that has a, a he gave the number. It's like 0.1237% chance of, chance of yeah, death from it. Okay. 
Don't greet your neighbor. It's, you know, there is wickedness in this world right now. There are people that think that they can control lives, but Christ is way above all of this. His plan is not going to be thwarted. It is not going to happen, okay? Greet your neighbor. I don't care what politician says, don't greet your neighbor. I don't care what they say. If they say you can't go to church, go to church. You have a right in this nation. It is the first right of the First Amendment of our Constitution, the first one, okay? They champion the freedom of press. They champion the freedom of assembly when it fits their agenda, sure. but they do not champion the first part of the First Amendment. You be disobedient. It's better to obey God rather than men. Okay? 411. Colossians. Colossians. What? Colossians. Oh. Two. 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 Nine. All the fullness, all the fullness the of the deity dwells bodily. Absolutely. All of it. And you see on the internet the, the boys in school hugging one another. Good for them. It says, finally, you get to greet your friends with a hug. Good. <laughs> they should have been doing it all along. Yeah. I disobey them. I'm telling you, I'm so tired of what they're doing in this nation. It's just terrible. Tearing lives apart, destroying people's lives for no reason at all. Yeah. It's just, it's disgusting. It really is. There is a, a time when you should be disobedient. I'm not saying that rise up against your government. I'm not saying that, so please don't go clicking that on this video. I'm saying that there are times when we have to exercise our rights, which are right in the Constitution, above all else. That's what we need to do. Okay, 411. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Yes. Oh, I'll qualify what I just said, too. The proof that we are to do those things is because we are now winning court case after court case after court case. It was brought up where these people took away the rights of churches, and now the court is saying that what they did was wrong. It was wrong. And so we have a legal standing to say what I just said to you. You don't have to listen to these people. The court is standing with us. Okay, 411. This verse begins with an emphasis on the word he. Thus, the New King James Version says, and he himself gave some to be. If there is an emphatic in the Greek, you'll often see that with some translations, he himself. It doesn't say that in the Greek, but it is in the emphatic position, and so it will, the translation has to somehow get that out, hopefully. What you could do is maybe say he, comma, or he with an exclamation point, or he himself, okay? However you get the emphasis across, it should be there, but quite often it's not. And he himself gave some to be. It refers back to Christ of, the, of verse 7. It is he and he alone who has made these designations. Though man may ordain, only Christ truly appoints. Each person is placed in their position within the church according to Christ's choice and his designation. In these selected positions, he begins with apostles. This category is to be taken in its stricter sense because there are different meanings of the word apostle, not different meanings, but different ideas of it. The meaning is an apostle is a sent one. That's right, a messenger. Okay, actually the word agalos or angel is a messenger. So when you see angel, it doesn't always mean something with wings that's showing up from heaven. All it means is a messenger and a human being can be an angel in scripture. Okay, there's plenty of evidence for that. But in this one, apostle, you want to change it a little from messenger to sent one. It is a person who is sent to do something. Okay, so 
The word apostle means messenger, which I have here, but it's actually a sent one. And at times, the early church was said to send out these messengers using the term apostle. However, the stricter sense is speaking of those designated specifically by the Lord and meaning certain, meeting certain qualifications. For example, one is that they had personally seen the Lord. Paul says that. We know that the designation of an apostle of Jesus Christ, not an apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning Peter or Paul or any of these people, one of the qualifications was that they had to have personally seen the Lord. Paul fits this requirement because of his unusual meeting with the Lord on the road to Damascus. This stricter sense of the designation of apostle no longer applies within the church. No person should use the title, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, because they have not been sent by Jesus Christ, and they have never seen Jesus Christ. And if they say they have, you can go somewhere else for your theology, because you got the wrong person, okay? It ended with the last of the called apostles, and, it ne and its need ceased with the final word, amen, at the end of the book of Revelation. There's no longer need for apostles, to be sent by Jesus because we have the full revelation of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. We don't need anything else. We don't need people in churches saying, the Lord told me. That's not necessary, okay? And the Lord didn't tell them. I can assure you of that, okay? Next, he notes some prophets. From the earliest times of the church, the office of prophet was separate and distinct from the other offices of the church. They were those who received special revelation from the Lord for the establishment and building of the early church. I do not believe that we need prophets today. If people claim the title of prophet, which is totally unnecessary, I would say stay away from them. That's Charlie Garrett, do what you want. I do not believe that we have people that receive revelation from the Lord, okay? They received it for the establishment and building of the early church. Such people stood and proclaimed what they had received under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why would they do that? because they didn't have the written word in the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament and whatever they had been told in the church, and there was a big void because people traveled around, the apostles, and they may have given this much information, but they didn't give all of the information. They didn't have the word to sit down and search it out, and so there were people that the Lord divinely inspired to give certain prophecies for the establishment of the early church. I don't see Charlie Garrett 101. You don't have to trust me, but I do not see any need for prophets today. We have the word. Nothing that any person has said in the past 2,000 years since Revelation was completed, nothing has built up the church to the point where it needed to be recorded. Show me one thing that has been recorded that was substantial for the benefit of all people within the church. There isn't. You're not going to find it, okay? It is not something that I believe is necessary, and I would be very careful listening to people that claim prophecies, okay? It is both unnecessary because, wait a minute, yes, as in the case of the apostle, this office of prophet has ceased. The history of the church shows us this. Only those who boastfully make unfounded assertions still claim this title. It is both unnecessary because we have the written word of God, and it is presumptuous because it makes a claim of special revelation received from the Lord that can't be validated. If somebody claims that they've got a revelation from the Lord, there is no way to validate it. 
You can't go inside their head and see, you know, at the time, see a little film of when Jesus talked to them. There's nothing like that out there. So they are claiming that they have something that you don't have and you should listen to them. I would be very, very careful listening to anybody that makes such claims. I have never listened to anybody like that, and I never will. Unless it happens to me personally. Did, did you have something? I just say what you said. And one of the things is when they say something that it's for damage. That's right. What he just said, because I, I, they can't hear you, I want to repeat it. What he just said is that when they say it, it is always something that is to their advantage. They will always benefit from it. And you know that it's not true when that's the case because it's supposed to exalt the Lord. It's supposed to bring him glory. And it never is. It's always something that will benefit. I sat in a church with he to go up in St. Petersburg. There was a visiting person we wanted to see. And the pastor said, oh, the Lord just told me that he needs somebody to have the church cleaned on Saturday. The Lord told me this. And, the Lord, and it was always exactly what you're saying. It was always something that would benefit him. He won't have to go and clean the toilet on Friday night because he's got somebody else to do it. Okay. I, I, it's very scary. And people love to fall for that kind of stuff because we are unwilling to think outside of what is just given to us by somebody. Because if we did, it means we'd have to study this word, which is very hard to do. It's something that takes mental. Most of us do that he left because the Lord told him his work was done. Oh yes. Like, what? Yeah, you got and it was definitely to his benefit that he left. There is no doubt about it. It was definitely to his benefit that he left. So this is, you know, I, whatever. But I, I am, I am saying this because I believe it's correct, and I believe that you should be very careful with people that make these claims. I do not think that you will ever benefit from such ever. They will certainly, but I do not believe you will. And I'm trying to save you the heartache of getting stuck with people like that okay I, I just that that's me you don't have to listen to me if you don't want to but i do not think that you should listen to people that make claims that they're apostles that they were sent by jesus or that they are prophets and they have a word from the lord the only prophesying that is truly relevant today is forth telling you've got foretelling you've got forth telling foretelling is the lord said to me and now i'm saying to you okay forth telling is taking the word of god and speaking it forth Okay, if one proclaims what has been written, it could be considered the work of a forth-telling prophet. But there are other titles which better describe this function. So why even call yourself a prophet? The term prophet is no longer needed within the church, despite boastful claims otherwise. Okay, you could call yourself, you know, people, I'll be at 7-Eleven and somebody will say, hey, pastor, and I always say, just call me preacher. Okay, I'd rather be called that because that defines what I do. I mean, pastor, yeah, whatever, okay? But that means I've got some type of ability to shepherd people, and I don't feel I have that ability at all. But I love to be called a preacher because I'm explaining to people that I take the Word of God, and I tell them about the Word of God. And if they want to know more, then I will explain it to them. But I just, you know, I, um, here's one of the things. I was just chewing on this as I was cleaning the mall a couple of days ago, is that people get bent out of shape over things. Well, the word pastor is never found in the Bible. What a stupid thing to say. I, I've heard that many times. Okay, guess what? The word Trinity, Trinity is never found in the Bible. The word rapture is the word original sin. All of these things are not found in the Bible. Do you know that the term pastor means somebody that shepherds a flock? Yes. And that is found all the way through Scripture. It's found in Old Testament. It's found in New. When people say stupid things like that, I, 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 whatever. I better not go off on that. 
Yeah. So you should give him a trophy. Give him a, here's your trophy. Yeah, you you know that that word isn't in the Bible. Very good for you. Okay. We have words to just... Dis- I, I understand it. Depends on the, the, the translation. Some people will say pastor the flock. Some people will say shepherd the flock. I understand that. I'm just simply saying that the word pastor as a title is not used in scripture. Okay. It, he's the pastor. That's not in there. And people like to take things like that and whatever. Yeah, it's, it is hair splitting. And it's it's showing that I'm better than you because you're saying something that I disagree with. That's all that is. The word preacher is not found in the Bible. The word preaching is, right? Okay, so just when people say things like that, I don't know, maybe just give them one of those funny eyes or something. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Okay, Paul next states some evangelists. This word, eugalistes, is used only three times in the New Testament. Here, Acts 21, verse 8, and 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. Helps Word Studies notes that it means someone with a vocational calling from God to announce the good news of the gospel. Every Christian is called to share the gospel, but an evangelist does so as a vocation, which includes preaching the full message of Christ's salvation, meaning the whole gospel. So, evangelist is a person that takes that and he defines it and he clarifies it for other people. I can tell you the gospel, maybe I can't evangelize well, okay? But everybody should be able to tell the gospel. Anyway, an evangelist is somebody that takes that and he builds on it. He says, Christ did this and this. Not saying he knows all of the doctrines of Scripture, but he knows all the doctrines of the gospel. How to properly present the gospel. Okay, the verse concludes with, some pastors and teachers. These two offices are lumped together here, just as they were noted under the single category of teachers in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. These people preach the word both to the unconverted and to the converted. They are to care for those under their charge in organization, instruction, proper explanation of the word now written, building up of the body, counseling, and so on. The office of pastor is possibly broader in scope than the teacher. But as both are noted under the one title of teacher in 1 Corinthians 12, they both are given for a united purpose, okay? Concerning the offices, and yes, in this translation, it does use the term pastor. So you can say, well, this one does, but that one doesn't. And it, once again, I, I don't know what the King James says, but if you're a King James onlyist and it doesn't say pastor, then you should never use that word because it doesn't say it in the authorized King James Version. Anyway, concerning the offices listed in this verse, and whether the first two are still relevant or not, Albert Barnes provides a wise and considered thought, saying, On the question whether this celebrated passage describes the regular orders or the functions, ordinary and extraordinary, of the ministry, we may fairly say that while no doubt the very genius of the passage points to the latter alternative, yet the ultimate appeal must be made to history. It is clear from the nature of the case that none could inherit the direct and universal commission from Christ held by the apostles. It is certain historically that the supernatural gifts of prophecy and miracles passed away. Now, this guy wrote hundreds of years ago, and he's saying exactly the way I feel, okay? And he's right about this. It is hardly less indisputable that the two functions of evangelism and pastorate were always shared among the three orders of bishops, priests, and deacons after the close of the apostolic age, okay? So he very clearly defined what I already believe, and that's why I cited him, is because there's no need for 
apostles. The word is written. There's no need for um, prophets because the word is written. There's no need for further revelation. However, these other things that he talked about are things that were used at that time and they continue to be used to this day. Okay, life application. Although it sounds impressive for someone to claim the title of apostle or prophet, they are inappropriate titles to claim. Best to steer clear of such folks. Okay, I, that's my thought on that verse. I believe it with all my heart, or I would not have said those things when I typed it, and I would not present it to you now if I didn't believe it. You believe what you want, follow who you want. If you turn on the, uh, the um, uh, TV and you see somebody that sounds convincing and he says, well, I'm prophet, do what you want with it. I would click him off so fast that I'd probably break my uh, remote in the process, okay? I just don't want to be influenced by people that make claims like that because they're not appropriate claims. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, oh, here we got somebody coming in right now. Come on in here. Come on in here. Oh, come on. Yeah. See? Look at the size of that. That's enough food for maybe a, for a thousand people here. Pizza night. How are you today? Pizza night. Here we go. Good to see you there. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you for lunch tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Lunch tomorrow too. All right. So last time, the guy that bought last time he was here was Doug and Doe over in Ireland. And I never mentioned that. So I wanted to thank them personally. Some people from Ireland. And today um, it was uh, Keith and Christine Peltz. They bought this for the church and you're the recipient of their blessing. So absolutely. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I'm bringing my grandson there for lunch. Oh, he's coming to lunch tomorrow. Good deal. Yeah. You will see me. Yeah. What time you open up? Well, but sometimes we run. That's okay. Twelve thirty as well. Picking them up. So we're good. There we go. All right. Be blessed and thank you. All right. Thank you. It's even better. Let's see if it's uh ten after. Do we have time for one more? We got four twelve, and it's how long? Yes, we're gonna do one more. So you can read four twelve, and then yes. Bibles have Philip the Evangelist. Yes. In the heading. It doesn't say that. It just says he went and proclaimed. Proclaimed. Yeah. So once again, translators say things, and different translations will say things, and some will say a pastor, and some will say a whatever, a shepherd, or whatever. You know, we just got to not get too bogged down in hair splitting. Who said hair splitting? Oh, you did. Okay. Don't get bogged down in hair splitting. Whatever. Hair. She's got a lot of hair. She's got a lot of hair, and it is all over the place. None of it is split. Dr. McGee always said, if you want to be right, believe what I'm telling you. That's right. You can have your choice. You can have you your choice. you want to be right. There you, you know, and that's, I, I, I like to joke like that, but then I sometimes regret it after I do, because I'll say, you know, uh, um, you can listen to anybody, whatever. And I say, but I know I'm right. And so you want to listen to me. And then I feel guilty because, you know, Charlie Garrett could be wrong. Mm -hmm. And if I say that, so that's why I try at the beginning of each class to say, and at the end of it, if, you know, check these things out. And if I am wrong, I would not be so intentionally. Okay, I certainly will not teach anything that I don't believe is right, but I could be wrong. Okay, so the best thing is to, uh, uh, but I like the way he says that. It's just, he's a man after my heart when he says that. Okay, 412. Prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Okay, a little different for equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, so. Which should be how we know that those who are calling themselves apostles and prophets. Yeah, are they building up the people? Because are they really building up the body? They're just Correct. proclaiming this 
Oh, we're going to have this prosperity. Yeah, There's going to yeah. be these wonderful things. Yeah. Okay. The word for. The word for is used three times in the English of this verse. But actually, two different words are used. Pros and eis. The word pros gives the idea of with a view to. Think of pro or forward. With a view to. It is the ultimate end which is in view. The word ice gives the idea of unto. Okay, so we do the same thing with for in the English, and that's why we have one word for two translations. And I don't like that. I wish that when you have words like this, the translators would try to be more precise and say for and with a view to or something, just so that people know that there are different words being used. But it's fine as long as you understand that the word for is being used in two senses here. Okay. Um, the word ice is given the idea of unto. The first thought is for the equipping of the saints. The appointment of the five offices of the previous verse, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is with a view to, okay, pros, or to the ultimate end of equipping the saints. The word translated as equipping is katartismas. It is found only here in the New Testament but it is found in classical Greek where it refers to the refitting of ships and also to the setting of bones. If somebody breaks their bones, they'll reset the bone, okay? So that gives you a sense of what Paul is using. It is as if the church is being used in order to bring about a refitting of that which was lost. Those in the special body are being brought into a restored relationship with God where intimate fellowship will exist just as it originally was for Adam. Now, we can have that more and more and more in our lives if we are closer and closer to the Lord, okay? If we are closer in knowledge of the Lord, if we're closer in our heart attitude towards the Lord, and all of those things, we can have that. But it will not happen if we're going to a church and simply doing what you were talking about a minute ago. If we're just saying how we're going to be blessed by the Lord, we're going to prosper and we're going to, I claim a Mercedes in Jesus' name, or you get off on tangents that have nothing to do with the scripture that is being evaluated. You're not going to get it. You might go home feeling good, but you can get that from a motivational sermon or a motivational speech at a company. That's what they do. They send these people into companies and they get their people all riled up and we're going to go and do a great job for the company. That benefits nothing in the relationship with the Lord. The way that you're benefited in a relationship with the Lord is to know the Word of God in its fullness and to understand the relationship between you and God because of the Word that is conveyed, okay? So I'll read that again. It is as if the church is being used in order to bring about a refitting of that which was lost. Those in this special body are being brought, hopefully, depending on where they're at, into a restored relationship with God where intimate fellowship will exist just as it was originally for Adam. Now, when we're glorified, everybody's going to be in this position at once. But we can have the idea of that glorification in this life right now if we are willing to pursue the Lord. We might not feel like it with the pains in our body or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the relationship attitude. We can have that even when we're dying on a deathbed if we're understanding the nature of the Lord and our relationship with him. The ministry and the edifying, which are next mentioned, are the means to obtain this end. Thus, equipping, the word equipping is in the emphatic position. This is why we can discern that two of the offices are no longer needed, that of the apostle and the prophets. They were given with a view to the equipping of the saints. With the end of the apostolic era, 
And with the end of the giving of biblical inspiration, they're no longer required. However, the other three categories are still needed for the end purpose of equipping the saints. They're being perfected for the ultimate goal for which the church is intended. Next, Paul notes that this is for the work of the ministry in order to reach the desired end goal. As noted, the word for here gives the idea of unto. The equipping of the saints is unto the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry then is intended for the equipping or perfecting of the saints. The evangelists, pastors, and teachers conduct their duties in order for this to come about. That's the purpose of these people. It's not to tell you that you're going to have a good week and everything's going to be okay. It's not to do any of that type of thing. It is for equipping the people in this capacity so that they can properly conduct themselves before the Lord. And even if people don't properly conduct themselves before the Lord, they should be convicted by the words that they hear, knowing that the words that they heard tell them that they should be equipped and responding accordingly. Okay, so either way, it is having its intended effect. Further, their work is for or unto the edifying, Paul says, the edifying of the body of Christ. When the body, meaning the sum of the individual parts, is edified, then the end goal of equipping the saints will be met. Paul's words are logically showing us how the church is being prepared to be the beautiful temple where God will reside. He will continue with this line of thought in the verses ahead, and he will tell why the work is so vital. Failing to adhere to the inspired words of the apostles and prophets, and a failure to have sound evangelists, pastors, and teachers can only lead to a sad end. I used to uh, be on Facebook, okay, when I was on Facebook, and I'm sure I've said this before, but it's something worth remembering. I have lots of friends that I went to high school with, and some of them go to certain churches here in Sarasota, and they will post right before going to church, woohoo, I'm going to church, I'm getting primed up for church. And they come home, and they will, after church, say, oh, I'm so filled with the Spirit. And it would just be this big, gushy thing that they would post on Sunday afternoon. And by Tuesday morning, they were talking about how bad life was, how terrible life was. And the people that never made those type of posts on Sunday, but throughout the work, uh, throughout the week, they had gone to church, a decent church where they heard the gospel, where they heard the word preached and taught properly throughout the whole week. Oh, my, my three children died in a horrible car accident, but isn't Jesus great? You know, my dog was just uh, stolen from me, but isn't God in control? They look at the world from a completely different perspective because they have the knowledge of God grounded into them. Whereas the other people, they just go there and they have no grounding at all, and everything is all fluff on Sunday, and the rest of the week, it's just these terrible posts, one after another, after, why is God so mad at me? Why is God so angry with me? It, it, it goes on and on. Where are you connected to God? Is it Sunday morning in the church, or is it throughout the week, being in his word, and knowing that everything is okay, despite what's going on around you? I, I, I would see that week after week, and it just reminded me, there is something to be said for proper doctrine. There is something to be said for people that are grounded in Christ because it's all over their lives on Facebook. You, do you still see that? Okay, he does. I don't when see I'm, it anymore. Not, yeah. yeah, when you're not in Facebook jail. <laughs> That's right. Okay, life application and we are done. It is right and appropriate that we should pursue sound doctrine 
understanding the nuances of the Greek is often not possible by reading any given translation of the Bible. Therefore, an analysis of the original languages and sound commentary from those who have been properly trained in those languages is a reasonable way of discerning what is right and proper concerning sound doctrine. I'm not saying that you need to know the Greek or the Hebrew. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that somebody that knows the Greek and the Hebrew is better than you are as far as doctrine. I prove that almost every week with the Cambridge commentaries in the Hebrew. Okay? But to understand what the Greek is saying or what the Hebrew is saying, and then to be able to make conclusions based on that or read commentaries that will help you through that that are sound commentaries is really important. It's something that you should do. Okay, not all commentaries from those people are good, so you have to use, you know, discernment. Yes, but at the same time, it is a very, very good thing that uh, you take your time and you don't just read the Bible, but also read people that are trained in the original languages. It's a big help. Okay, um, I thought that we'd have um, uh, Greg and Andy and maybe Kathleen again here because they were here last week, and I'm sorry they don't get any pizza today. Hey, there you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. And uh, we're very grateful for it. We're grateful for uh, your hand upon us, your goodness to us. And we thank you for this dinner that we're about to have. And we ask that you bless it. And we do ask that you uh, bless the people that listen to this in the future. And if anything was said that was not right, that that would be brought up and corrected so that I could correct the commentary and also bring that up during a future study. Lord, it would never be our intention to have something taught incorrectly here. But we leave this in your hand, knowing that you are far greater than we are, and you can read those things out. And so please do, according to your wisdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.